The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And uh, community could be pictured in a lot of different ways. And in, in the Nifty brochure, it's pictured as, can anybody tell me? Anybody know? You can look, you can cheat. It's pictured as uh, a cup and bread. Could be a cup of coffee, could be a cup of wine, could be, who knows, tea? Uh, maybe some Nepalese tea or something. Uh, and the idea of uh, tax, Acts 2.42 that... The Christians came together and broke bread together, fellowship together. Certainly is a pictured by that. But this morning I would like to use the picture or the image of a, sa- of a sail- sailing ship. And uh, let me explain a little bit uh, by way of introduction what I, what I envision when I think about community and how it relates to a sailing vessel. You know, back uh, a thousand years ago, whatever, 500 years ago, if you wanted to travel by sea... Uh, your only option was to, to join with a team of people who were sailing somewhere, right? Uh, and to, to go out on the open high seas, out on the ocean, and to face the, the winds and the storms and the perils that could be at sea. You needed a, a large enough boat that could be seaworthy. And, and, and to man and captain and crew a vessel like that took a lot of people. It wasn't something uh, an individual could do. And so... Uh, it was a great picture of teamwork, of cooperation, and of what I envision as community. But what's interesting is today, the world we live in today, you just don't see sailboats like that very often anymore. In fact, even this sailboat is also powered by diesel engines. So if the wind dies, no problem, right? And today we live in a time and an age where sea travel can be done very much as a solo venture. You can get a small boat with a powerful engine, all kinds of great electronic gadgets and devices. You don't have to know how to really do anything other than read a GPS. And you can sail on your own. And you can go anywhere you want, right? You are not limited or constrained by somebody else's agenda. And so when I think about the church today, I think oftentimes we as a church are, are kind of like a harbor with a, a bunch of little private boats that have been out crisscrossing the waves, going their own little way all week long, and they come back to harbor once a week and all dock side by side. We have to crunch in to make room for people. And we exchange our stories a little bit before we go back out all in our own different directions. right? And, uh, and we would say that the harbor is our community. But that's really not what Jesus had in mind when he talks about what the church is to be. We are not to be people privately sailing on our own agenda, our own direction, in our own little individualistic worlds. He pictured something much different, something that I think would be much better pictured by a group of people sailing together on a ship that is set in one course and direction, that is guided by one captain, and where all of its crew members work together for the successful completion of that venture, that voyage. And... uh, the passages we want to look at this morning, we're going to start with John 15, uh, where we picked up, um, where we left off last week. And I want to just pick up there and then jump to John chapter 17, where Jesus really describes in prayer what he has in mind by the, the unity, the oneness, the community that is to be the church. So uh, we read last week John uh, 15, 1 through 8, where Jesus says, Abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches, unless you abide in me. Uh, and my word abide in you, you cannot bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he picks up on that in verse 9. He says, I have loved you in the exact same way the Father has loved me. Right there's a sermon in itself. We could spend all morning just on that phrase. Jesus says, I have loved you to the degree and extent and capacity that God the Father has loved me. That's incredible. He says, when, he says, you need to remain in that love. And I want to know what that love is, and I want to live and breathe and be in that love, right? Um, God loving us with the infinite measure of his love and goodness. Uh, he says, uh, when you obey my commands, you remain in my love. So he describes how abiding in God's love works. He says, abiding in my love means simply you're obedient to my commands, 
says, if you love me, you will love the things that I am about. You will love my values. You will love my heart. And you will join in my mission. And so you will obey what I command. You'll be with me. Uh, So again, it kind of goes back to the image of the ship. If Jesus is the captain of the ship, if we love the captain, when he gives orders, we do what? Cry mutiny? (laughs) Say, I'm going to get in my own boat. I like this boat. No, we obey because we want to be a part of his mission. We want to see the sailboat successfully journey forward. We walk in obedience. So he says, when you obey my commands, you you are remaining, abiding in my love, just as I obey my Father's commands and remain in his love. I told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And this is my commandment. Okay, so he boils it down. He makes it really simple for us. He knew he knew he'd be working with people like me who are quite simple and slow and single-minded. Right? He didn't give a lot of instructions. Okay, he, he did the Old Testament, 613 laws. didn't work so well. So, okay, here it is, guys. Let me just give you one. Okay, can you do one? <laughs> I can do one. What is it? He says, uh, love one another. Love one another. Okay, so that's... Um, his picture of the church functioning together. We are living in relationships where we love one another as Christ loved us. Um, But I want to kind of go beyond that and look at uh, John chapter 17 where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer. Uh, And, you know, when you think about Jesus praying for something right before he goes to the cross, it gives you an indicator that the things he prays for in these 25 verses must be extremely important, right? Notice he doesn't pray for a lot of things, right? He prays for a very careful select few things because he's going to the cross and he is giving his last word in prayer to the Father, uh, plea and petition about the future of this ship, the church, right? And uh, we won't go through the whole prayer. I just want to focus uh, verses 20 through 23, And he says this, I am praying not only for the disciples who are with me now, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So as we begin, let's take just a moment and pray that God would teach us his word this morning. Lord, these are just amazing words and truths, and as Jesus' final prayer, they have incredible weight and significance. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to uh, pay close attention to what Jesus is, is, is pleading with the Father that he would do in the unfolding of his purpose for the church. And Lord, help us to know what this means for us in our personal lives and our lives together as the body of Christ and in light of our mission to reach the world for Jesus. So we pray that your spirit would speak and guide us this morning. Uh, that you would impress upon our hearts your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, ultimate unity, as Jesus describes it, as, as he per- portrays it in the church, is ultimately to be one in Christ. Right? Um, and, and he starts off by, by defining that really clearly when he, when he prays, and he says, I'm not only praying for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Uh, the word their message is the word, again, logos. We saw it in John 15 when Jesus says, you will be cleansed, purified through the logos. See it in John 1 where Jesus is the logos. It, it really depicts Jesus' life and work to bring redemption to us. Right? So here's the cool thing. 2,000 years ago, these 12 guys uh, that Jesus worked with uh, finally, it took them a while, but they finally got it, what this message was. And Jesus died, and he rose again, and they really got it then. And they started proclaiming this simple message of good news, that Jesus came to reveal the Father, 
to show the world who the Father was and how much his love for them was. Through that, to bring salvation to mankind. Uh, died as the sacrifice for our sin to pay the penalty and price for our failures and mistakes. And rose again to show that he conquered sin and death. And we too can have new life in him. That's the message, the simple message. The message is, is this. You messed up, but God took care of it. And he has set things right. He's brought justice to your injustice through the work of Christ on the cross. And it's possible for you now to have a relationship with him. And the cool thing is, uh, those 12 guys told some people, and that message changed them. And they told some more people, and the message spread throughout the world. And not only through the world, but through the generations, age after age after age. And now, 2,000 years later, you and I are here as those who have been changed by the message, but also as messengers taking the gospel forward. And a lot of you are taking the gospel to places where it has never been proclaimed. 2,000 years, people have not heard this message. And you sitting in this room are part of the glorious mission of God of, of advancing that message. Right? And praise God for that. Praise God you are here. And praise God together. That's what we're about. Uh, bringing Jesus to new places. Bringing Jesus to a new generation. Bringing the message of hope to people who have never heard it. And so Jesus pictured this. He envisioned this. Uh, he had a lot more faith than I would have. Had I, I mean, you look at these 12 guys. If I was Jesus, I'd have been praying, Oh, Lord, help me. What have we done? I'm about to die, and these guys are not getting it. But Jesus saw that the gospel would have effect. And he knew that it would go forward. And not because of the brilliance of mankind, not because of the brilliance of his disciples, but because of the power of that message people would be saved generation after generation. And 2,000 years from, now, from then, Jesus envisioned us sitting here, those who would believe as a result of this message, as a result of it being preached. And this is what he prays for us. He says, um, I pray that they would be one as, as we are one. Praying to the Father, as the Father and I are one. I pray that this group of people would possess an incredible oneness. And uh, the word community, you might think, well, what does community have to do with oneness? Well, uh, community is two Latin words. Com means with. Unity means one. With oneness. Right? So, so when Jesus prays that we, we would be one, he's praying for community. That, there would be, uh, that we would be characterized as a people who possess incredible unity and oneness. Um, but what exactly does that mean? As we think about this, what does this look like? What does it mean to be one? What does it mean to have unity or community or oneness? Uh, now, some of you who are old enough to grow up and experience the 60s, this could mean interesting things for you, right? Because we remember the days of the hippie movement and the whole love-in thing and uh, where unity and oneness and peace meant this big, you know, love-in where we all just kind of had this big group hug and we all sing Kumbaya, and it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, or what you did. We accept everybody, right? Um, and, you know, if, you're, if you live through the 60s, that should bring back great memories. And, and, and uh, if you didn't, watch the movies. They're hilarious. Um, interestingly, though, uh, there's many facts, facets, many places where the modern church has very much this idea of unity. They have this idea that unity is about tolerating everybody and accepting everyone just as they are and that somehow this represents God. And they have this idea that God is like this, that God is a God of perfect love and that's all he's about. And so God accepts everybody. And it doesn't matter about truth. It doesn't matter about his own character or justice. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are, whether you follow him or reject him or hate him. That God just accepts everybody. That God's just one big happy God and a big love-in who just invites everybody, Buddhists, you know, uh, Islams, um, Muslims, you know, Hindus, uh, atheists, everybody. And God's just this big happy guy who just wants to have one big happy hug, and that's unity. Right? Well, when you look through the New Testament, Jesus, as well as the apostles, didn't actually, actually experience unity like this. In fact, Jesus... Um, got in such conflict with uh, the church, they killed him, right? Not exactly one big happy love in, right? Him and the Pharisees were like, 
sitting around singing Kumbaya, you know. Uh, they were fiercely resistant to him. And Jesus did not accommodate them. He didn't say, oh, it's okay, no, we just kind of have a difference of opinion, but for the sake of peace and unity, we'll just kind of chill. No, he told them they were whitewashed tombs, right? Uh, the Apostle Paul comes along. Uh, the Apostle Paul teaches over and over again the importance of unity, of oneness. He teaches this principle with uh, fiercity. And yet Paul was constantly in conflict. Everywhere he went, they were stoning him, killing him, putting him in prison. Both uh, the Roman government as well as church officials and Jews, right? Uh, he didn't have friends anywhere. So if Jesus and the apostles are a picture of unity, then unity has to be more than just a big love in a big peace movement where we just lay aside all of our differences and we don't care about ideas or truth or justice or values. We accept everybody unequivocally and we just love each other. Right? That's not Jesus' idea and it's certainly not, not what Jesus is praying for here. Um, what exactly is he praying for? What does he picture when he says, um, I pray that they would be one? Well, he defines it this way. He says, he says, they should be one as, the, as I and the Father are one. Okay, so the definition of oneness uh, is defined by, by Jesus' oneness with the Father. And he says, what it means is, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Okay, does that clear it up for everybody? It doesn't clear it up for me. It makes it more confusing, because I don't get this. What does it mean to be in the Father? What does it mean that the Father is in Jesus? And worse, what does it mean for us to be in Him? What does that mean, right? Um, how do we depict unity if it means somehow God being in Jesus, Jesus being in God? Well, uh, I think the, the best picture of it, and God gave us this picture to help us understand His own unity as a triune God. God's one God. He exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's existed that way for all eternity past. Uh, he's a God of relationship, and so he's not just schizophrenic. He's three distinct persons. He is a father. He is a son. And somehow he's spirit, whatever that is. Right? And they exist in relationship. So he gave us a picture of that because he knew this would be confusing for us. And the picture that he gave us is not an egg or ice. Okay? Those are good pictures, but that's not the one he gave us. The picture he gave us is marriage. Right? He created man and woman, two distinct persons. And he said in Genesis, you know, for this reason, the husband, the man, will leave his father and mother, and he will cleave to his wife. He will stick to her, literally. Uh, they'll get stuck together. And uh, they, the two shall become one. Right? The two shall become one. So two individual people, still individuals. It doesn't mean that they swallow up each other's personalities. Right? Um, it means, though, that they somehow become uh, interconnected. There's a sense in which the man becomes part of his wife to such an extent that you could say he is in her. He's part of how she thinks and operates. Likewise, she becomes part of him. Right? And the two become one. And the best image for that I can think of is it's, you know, before they were two motorboats going their own direction, and every once in a while they may park side by side and may Google eyes at each other, and then kind of go off on their own way. But when you get married, you now become one vessel sailing together. Right? Your lives are intertwined and interconnected. And that's really, uh, and as you study the, the picture and images of oneness, throughout Scripture, God has this idea of oneness. And it started in Genesis with Adam and Eve. And throughout uh, Old Testament, New Testament, that's his picture, that we are to be one. There's to be this connectedness. And so it's pictured in Mary, it's pictured in the Trinity, and it's to be lived out in the church, right? So practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, uh, without spending a lot of time, let me just briefly cover this. It really means to be one in purpose. You know, we're, we're, we're going in the same direction. We're, we're, on, we're on the same track together. It means to be one in mind or thought. We value the same thing. That doesn't mean in the church that we will always agree on every little petty idea but the core values, the way we think about God, ourselves, and the world will be increasingly united and one. Right? 
Uh, we will be one in mission. Okay, we will be ultimately about the same task. Because if you're on a sailing ship, the, the course for that ship is set. And you have a choice to either go with it or jump off ship. Well, that's the picture of the church. We are one in purpose, mission, and mind. And ultimately we are, as he reminds us in John 15, one in love. Right? Uh, so we together share those common goals, those common missions and values. Uh, just as the Father and the Son do. Okay, God the Father, God the Son... Uh, they never, you know, they never had a disagreement about these things. They never, you know, Jesus never said, "Well, I think we should do this." And the Father says, "No, I think that's the dumbest idea ever." Right? Never, never. They were one in heart, one in mind, one in purpose, one in mission. And so, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus saying repeatedly, "Father, not my will, but yours." Uh, I don't do anything of my own. I do only what I see my Father doing. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. My mission, my thinking, my life, my love, my purpose is dictated by the will and purpose of the Father. Well, so how does that work with us? Okay, if it means that we as a group of people in this room are to share the same purpose, mission, mind, and love, how does this work? I mean, this is how this, this, is how this works. This is how I observe this working. You take a group of 10 Christians, okay, any 10 Christians you want, you put them in a room, and you'll have 15 opinions, right? Uh, how could we ever agree on anything, right? And I'm sure all of us have that experience. We've been on boards, we've been in committees, we've been in committee meetings. And you know, there's five people on the board. There's 25 ideas, all going in different directions, right? Um, how are we supposed to be this? How are we supposed to be one in mind, in purpose, in mission, and in love? We're too different for that. And I will say this right from the beginning, that God's plan is not that we be conformed and become uh, like cookie-cutter cutouts um, where we're all carbon copies of the same thing. Interestingly, though, most other religions do that. You observe what most man-made religions are about. They're about producing carbon, cutty, carbon copy cutouts. Right, where we're stamping out people who look just exactly the same. Scripture teaches clearly that God has gifted us and created us all uniquely different. And so we come with many different gifts, abilities, perspectives, ideas, backgrounds, thoughts of our own. Right? But we're to be bringing those things together under the banner of one purpose and mission. So it could look like this. If you look, use the analogy of a ship, it could look like this. Jesus himself is the ship. Right? So uh, what Jesus says here is our oneness will be achieved not by tolerance, not by accepting everybody under the sun in the sake of unity. He says simply, you'll be one when you are one in me. Right? So the way we achieve oneness <clears throat> is not by working at unity. Uh, and sadly, around the world, churches have tried this, ecumenical movements have tried this, um, you know, countries have tried this. But they say, let's, let's sit down, let's have peace talks. Right? Let's talk about peace. And what that means is you get together and you talk about all your differences and you try to find some way to compromise or to negotiate putting up with each other. Right? Okay, it doesn't work. Uh, and I can we go around the globe, Israel, I mean, around the globe, Africa, countless places, most church denominations, where this has not worked, okay? You can't make peace by talking about it. You can't make peace by getting together and talking about all the ways you're different and then trying to defend your differences against their differences. Right? Because that's not, that, that will never work. Jesus, the only way you'll ever be one is if you are one in me, Okay? And so what this means is, uh, we, we talked a lot last week about communion, about it, when, what it means to be in Christ, to be in deep personal relationship and communion with Him. Well, communion and community are not two separate things. When it comes down to it, they really are two of the exact thing uh, lived out in two different directions. Communion is lived out primarily in the, hor in the vertical towards God, Community is the exact same thing, just being lived out horizontally towards each other. Right? So he says, first thing is, you've got to be in me. Uh, you've got to be on the ship. And the way we get on the ship is we have to uh, step off our own little motorboat, right? where we control the rudder, where we set the mission, where we go about it our own way and by our own means. 
we got to get off that ship and turn our back on it and step onto Jesus' ship where we decide we're going to go in line with wherever Jesus is going. We are going to conform our life to his purpose, values, and mission. We're going to surrender and yield our agendas and our will to Jesus. Um, and not so much just his program, but really his person. I'm going to be in relationship with him. That's what it means to be on that boat. Uh, and Jesus says, if you're not on that boat, or in, in John, he says, you're not in the vine, you're not on that boat, if you're not with me, if you're not in me, you can do nothing. You can produce no fruit. Right? So no matter how much, no matter how fast your motorboat is, no matter how high-tech your motorboat is, no matter how much you zip your motorboat here, there, and around and all over, everywhere, it's not going anywhere. Right? It's not accomplishing anything. The only way you can accomplish anything is if you are on uh, the ship called Jesus Christ and in relationship with Him, in communion and fellowship with Him. And so the way it works is the more we, as individual people, come into Christ and come into deep communion and fellowship relationship with Him, we naturally will become more one with each other. Right? As I surrender my values and my agendas and my goals and my will to Jesus and take on His priority, His values, His heart, I will inherently become more and more like the other person who's done the same thing because we will now share together in common the heart and values and mission and ideas of Christ. Right? The more I become more Christ-like, the more my brother becomes more Christ-like, the more we become more internally like each other. Uh, now, we don't, again, we don't become like each other in personality. We won't become like each other in, in a lot of ways and culture and background, but in core values internally, we will share Christ and we will become one. Um, to take the analogy a little bit farther, Jesus is the ship, God the Father is the captain. Right? He sets the course. He's the one who decides his will and purpose. Uh, Jesus himself says, I, I don't do that. I take my orders from God the Father. He's the one steering the ship. So we acknowledge his lordship and the more that we do that, the more we forge together in the same direction. We own together the same mission and purpose. Uh, and finally, the great thing about the sail ship, sail, sailing ship image is that the Holy Spirit becomes the wind in our sails, right? He becomes the one blowing in harmony with the Father and the Son, moving the church forward in its mission. Uh, and we, we get to be the crew, right? Uh, now, does every crew member have the same job? No. On a crew, there's all kinds of jobs and, and purposes and functions, right? Uh, each comes with their own gifts and ability. You know, the most important guy next to the captain on the ship would be who? Right, the cook. Because <laughs> if the crew's not happy, you know, you're in trouble. So uh, everybody comes with their own gifts, their own calling, their own abilities, Right? And, and the Holy Spirit gives out gifts according to His purpose for the church. We all have a job on the ship, right? And we're all doing different things. Being on the same purpose and mission doesn't mean we all do the exact same thing. It doesn't mean we all become preachers and all preach, right? Or all become uh, evangelists and evangelize. We all have different gifts and places and roles in the body of Christ. But all those roles are, should be working together collaboratively and collectively to move the message, move the mission of God forward, which is the gospel, okay, which is how we got here because church in ages past has been faithful to transmit that message. And that's what we're about, transmitting that message to places where it's never been heard and to generations who don't know him. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, you cannot abide and not live in community. And it's very interesting, in John 15, you go back to John 15, Jesus talks all about abiding in the vine, I'm the branches, you can't bear fruit without me. And in part of that he says, uh, you must, to abide in me means to abide in my love, and to abide in my love means to obey my commandments. And to obey my commandments means to love each other. Right? To live with his heart of compassion and mercy and love towards each other. So abiding and community, communion and community are very much two parts of the same thing. Right? The more you abide in Christ, the more you will live in community with those fellow Christians in the world. Right? 
The more you live in community, the more you love and support and give yourself to serving each other, the more you are abiding in Christ. So it's not like this. You know, some people get the idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abide in Christ. I'm going to go off into some remote, solitary place and I'm going to be there for you know, months on end, just me and God. Right? Well, that's not true abiding because Jesus said to be truly abiding, you're living in community and loving others. Now, for some of us, maybe going away far, far away would be loving others, you know. It would be the best gift you could give until God kind of sorts you out. I don't know. But at some point, you've got to come back. And you've got to be in relationship where you're giving yourself to others. Because that's what Jesus did. Okay, so that's, um, that's the, the crux of it, being one with Christ, being one in Him. Uh, Jesus goes on and He says, and He says, He prays that twice. He says, I pray it in verse uh, 21 that you would be one as I and the Father are one. He says the same thing again in 23. He says, I in them and you in me. May they experience, or through that, experience or come to such perfect unity right, that, that, that He wants to perfect unity in us. Uh, and so He wants us not just to be a little bit unified, but perfect, perfected in unity, in deep relationship with Him, deeply connected to each other. But in the midst of that, He throws in this verse that uh, can drive any Bible scholar insane. He says, uh, I have given them, spring to the Father, I have given them, the church, the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus says he's given us the gift of glory to help us. He says, you need help in this process. Uh, you need to be one in me, but I'm going to give you some help, a special gift, and that special gift is my glory. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, commentators, scholars are very confused on this one. Nobody really knows for sure or will say with definitiveness what this glory is. Um, some would say it's future glory in heaven, the promise of future glory in heaven. Some would say it's some kind of honor now. Um, what did Jesus mean by this? And how does it help us have oneness and unity? Well, <clears throat> let's take a, a short time out and do a word study on uh, the Greek word doxa. We get the word doxology, right? Doxa means glory. Uh, what does this word really mean? Well, in its basic meaning, it suggests something which radiates from the one who has it, leaving an impression behind. Okay, so any of you ever, you know, in fifth grade when your teacher said, never look at the sun, you'll go blind. And so as soon as you got outside, what did you do? You looked at the sun, right? Uh, and so you look at the sun and it, until your eyes start to water, and you close your eyes. And when you close your eyes, what do you see? The sun, right? The glory, the, the sun's radiating this glory. It's radiating this light, this intense light, so much so that it burns an impression on your retina, which is kind of why you're not supposed to do it all the time. And when you close your eyes, it's still there, right? Uh, it leaves an impression. Okay? It leaves a mark of glory. And, and that's inherent in what the definition means. It means something that makes a deep impression on you. Right? So maybe you have known a person who carried a certain weight of glory. They, by their giftings or by their charisma, by something they've accomplished, they are, we would say they are impressive. That's kind of the modern way of saying they're glorious. See, we wouldn't say of some athlete, oh, he's glorious. Right? We would say they're impressive. What do we mean by that? Well, they make an impression on you, right? There's something about their character, their life, something about what they've accomplished, that when you're around them, they impress you. They leave a mark on you. And I've known um, some great Christian men like that who I've had the privilege of being around from time to time who, because of their character, because of what God had done in their life, being around them just kind of impresses you. And it, it changes you. It, it affects you, right? Well, inherently, that's, what, that's what's meant by the word glory, okay, at its root meaning. So when you use it of God, what does it mean? Well, God is rather impressive. Right? Um, and if we were to see God face to face as we will someday, we will be very impressed. We'll probably be overwhelmed with impression. Right? He will leave a mark on us. Uh, so much so that for those who don't know Him, it's not going to be a comfortable mark. And then throughout Scripture, when God appeared to those who, who were not yielded to Him, it was not a comfortable impression, right? And for, actually, for many of us, it may not be a comfortable impression because His glory is so impressive, right? It's like the sun. It threatens to burn us up, 
Um, But certainly God does. He is so. So we would say that when God reveals Himself, when God discloses Himself, that is His glory. So to to the degree that God reveals who He is, His character, His nature, His being, it will make an impression. It will leave a mark. Right. And so Jesus says, "I have given them the glory that You gave Me." What What does that mean? Well, it means simply this: throughout eternity. God the Father, God the Son lived together, and they were completely transparent, we can say. They didn't hold anything back. They weren't like the Wizard of Oz hiding, you know, behind the curtain. They lived honestly face to face with each other. And God the Father revealed, He manifested the fullness of His character and being to the Son. He showed the full expression of His love to the Son. He held nothing back. He loved the Son all out. And likewise, Jesus as a son, loved his father all out. And God displayed to his son all the glory of his holiness and character to the extent that it made an impression on Jesus. Right? And of course, being God himself, he could take the fullness of who God is and could, in the same way, reflect back the full God, uh, godness of his being to the Father. They shared that together. Right? Well, when, when God sent Jesus to earth, uh, Jesus said, I come as the revelation of the Father. Right? In other words, Jesus is the incarnate, the living manifestation of the glory and character and being of God. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples over and over again, you want to see the Father? Hello? <laughs> right here. Look here. This is the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Um, now, of course, it was confusing for them because they wanted the glory of God to be all shiny, <laughs> like radioactive, right? And Jesus wasn't radioactive. He was kind of normal. Uh, humanly speaking, he was fully man, right? They wanted him to glow in the dark, and he did it. But Jesus said, that's not important, okay? It's not important. What's important is how I live life, right? How I demonstrate God's love to the world, how I live out God's purpose and mission and heart in the world. So Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He served people. He prayed for people. He took little children and put them on his lap. Right? He showed his Father's love in incredible ways. And ultimately, he laid down his own life as a sacrifice for sin. God, Paul says, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, he sent his own Son to die in our place. He became sin for us. So Jesus is the manifestation. He is the glory of God. So what Jesus is saying here is this, I gave them the glory you gave me. I have revealed fully to to them who the Father is. I have fully shown you through my life what it means to be like God. So being one in Christ, if if being uh, in oneness, means being on mission and purpose and, and mind with God. First of all, it means being in Christ. But secondly, it means that that Jesus has shown us what that looks like as we live in relationship with each other. He says, I've helped you out. I've shown you. Just do what I did. Just love each other like I did. Okay? Just die for people like I did. Wash their feet like I did. Pray for the sick like I did. Take notice of small children that nobody else cares about like I did. You think you're a nobody and don't count and nobody cares about you. I do. Right? And so you likewise need to look out for people around you who nobody cares about because that's the heart of God. That's what it means to live in oneness. That's the glory I have given you. So we become one first by abiding in Christ, secondly by following His example. That's what he's saying here. I've given you a glorious example to follow. My example should have made a deep impression on you. Live it out. Just live it out. Um, well, why is this so important? Um, well, he praised this, not just so that we could be the ultimate fulfillment of the 60s hippie movement, so that we could all be peace child, so that uh, he has a much more important mission and purpose than that. And notice what he says. Both times, uh, in both prayers, he ends it this way. He says, I pray that they would be one so that the world would know you sent me. Why is it so important that we be one? Well, quite simply, it's because it's the most important uh, means of defending the gospel. 
how does the world, how will the world know that Jesus is true? Well, we could argue him, right? We could get up and we could, uh, you know, give the evidence that demands a, ver- a verdict. We could, you know, show all the proofs in Scripture. We can show all the proofs in history. We can do, use the best apologetics to convince people that Jesus is really God. Does that work? Well, I wouldn't say it has no value, but that's not what Jesus prayed. Okay? Jesus did not pray. I pray that they'd be really super smart so they could just you know, trash their opponents in logic and reason and argue them into the kingdom. He doesn't pray that. Right? Instead, he prays what? He says, I pray that they would possess such incredible unity that the world just knows I came from God. And then he adds in the second one, he adds this. He says, I pray that uh, then they will see... Uh, then the world will know that you sent me and the world will know that you love them as much as you love me. In other words, Jesus wants the world to be convinced of two things. Number one, that Jesus is God. That He truly is unique and He's the only one who came from the Father uh, and that Christianity is unique. It is not man-made. It's not originated from a human author. It's, it's originated from one who is God himself. Secondly, he wants the world to know that this God who sent Jesus loves them, loves them deeply. Right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? What is at stake in our unity is the salvation of the world. Because Jesus says the, the way they're going to get this, the way they're going to grasp that the truth of the gospel is when they see it being lived out in your lives in community, in relationship. Right? The most effective evangelists in the world, armed with all the best stories and resources and testimonies, if he's living in isolation and on his own little motorboat, okay, will not be effective. Okay, now, God's word does not turn, return void. God uses all of us. Right? But ultimately, he says, the way we will be effective in, in bringing the gospel is in our, uh, our example as we live together, loving each other. Uh, so what does this mean for us? Real quick, three things, just real quick. What does it mean for us to live in community? It means a lot of things, and I don't have time to go into all of it. Um, Quite honestly, what it means here in Ching Mai at Ching Mai Christian Fellowship with a, uh, a group of people who are constantly coming and going. You know, um, Maybe what it should mean is we should glue you down. That's not what God's doing in your life, right? God's, God's moving you to other places, right? And it's, uh, So what does it mean here? I don't know all of what it means here, and we wrestle with that a lot. But here's three things that I think uh, we can hopefully take home. First of all... Um, a way to test your, your, how, how, where you are in communion would be to evaluate and gauge where you are in community. Right? So in other words, uh, if we love Jesus, we will love his body. So here's just a thought of self-evaluation. Right? Think about your life. Um, you know, if, you are in a, if, if you're married, okay, you're not single, you're married, is your marriage depicting oneness, right? Or is it more of a strained, distant, broken relationship that's full of conflict and strife, right? Um, if, if, if your marriage is strained, conflicted, uh, rocky, right? It's, it, here's why. Because you and your spouse are very different people. <laughs> okay? You already knew that, <laughs> right? And the only way you will be one is if both of you are, are deeply in communion with Christ. Right? So if you have marriage problems, you know, you get marriage counseling, it's a good thing. But I'll tell you, the, the ultimate solution, what will fix it, is when you commit yourself fully to being in communion with Christ. When you deeply sink your life in Jesus. Get off your own boat, right? Because that's the problem. That's why you're having problems, because you're on your own motorboats. You keep crashing into each other and sinking each other. Okay? You've got to get off that boat. You had to get on Jesus and bury your life in Him. Okay, seek after Him. 
And you say, well, I'm doing that, but my spouse isn't. <laughs> okay. Praise God that you are. That's good. Um, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in, in, in you, ask anything you want and I will do it. Start praying for your spouse that they would sink their life in Jesus, would fully learn what it means to commune with their whole being with the eternal God of the universe and be in him. Right? And God will restore your relationship as the two of you come together one in Christ, guaranteed. Um, you know, how about your ministry team, where you work, uh, your, your ministry partners? What does that look like? Does it look like a lot of discord, strife, confusion, gazillion opinions going 9,000 different directions because you not agree on a plan, a purpose, a program? Okay, I know whole mission organizations that this would characterize their, their existence, right? Um, what is that a sign of? What's well, a sign of a group of people who aren't, aren't abiding in Christ? Okay? Because Jesus says, if you're abiding in me... You will be living out unity and oneness. Okay? It's just that simple. I hate to be super black and white, but it's the way it is. Okay? If you're not experiencing unity, all right, uh, then it means somebody on the team is not experiencing communion. Now, again, I know that you are in communion. You're following Jesus. You are abiding. You are praying, right? And it's true that, you know, Paul had lots of conflict. Sometimes you're on teams with people who are not there, right? Um, Pray for them, right? Pray for them. And make sure that, well, you know, Paul had conflicted, broken, hard relationships, but Paul also had lots of communion and community within his team, right? If you don't have any community around you, that's a problem, okay? And the problem is probably you. Okay, so think it through. Think, evaluate. Where am I at? Okay, am I really abiding in Christ? Second thing, um, loving beyond our circle, uh, in a practical sense, what does this look like? In a practical sense, what does it mean to love people? And in this church, we've got, I don't know, three, 400 people. Next year, we'll have another different 400 people. That's 800 people. Five years from now, it's like, I don't know, a couple thousand people that come through. How can I love them all? I can't even remember your names, right? I want to, but you know, my three brain cells is just way too much. Um, what does this look like? Well, for most churches, they've decided, well, what this looks like is we need small groups, right? And the answer is small groups. Or even better yet, the fad now is to just forget big church altogether and let's just do home churches. That home churches can live this out much better. That home churches can truly have true community. Home groups can have true community. And that the real problem is that there's so many of us all stuck in one place anyway. Is that true? Well, um, I'm not sure that what Jesus had in mind here is that we get together with the people who are most like us, who think most like us, who look most like us, who speak our language, and who stick with our culture, and we isolate ourselves into a small, secluded circle of our best friends, that that's unity. I don't think that, or community, okay? I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Now, I'm not against home groups, home church, home anything, small group anything, we, we naturally will have our own circle. And we should have our own circle, and we should love those people, right? But if, if your circle is all that it is, you're missing the point, the point okay? Uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus said, uh, what about the poor? What about little children? What about the oppressed, Right? What about the rejects? What about those who don't speak our language? What about those who are not our culture? Right? What do we do with those? Right? Jesus said we need to be reaching out to those. We need to make intentional effort to go outside our comfortable circle to love and look after and care for and meet the needs of those who are not like us. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Uh, it is when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever do that for you? And he says to them, I tell you the truth, when you did it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters... You did it for me, right? Um, again, I'm not against home groups. 
But if it's not a home group, if it's not a fellowship, if it's not a circle that's outward focused on meeting those who are not like us, uh, you know, it's hard here because we have people from a lot of different countries, cultures, languages. It's really easy to just ignore those who aren't like us. Really easy, right? That's not what Jesus had in mind by being one. It means loving and reaching out to those who are not like us. Last thing, we don't have time for the last thing. We're, we're running out of time. And what I, uh, I want to give time because we have a good illustration and example of this. So let me end with this, illust- this, this illustration. Uh, it, it means being plugged into the church. Okay? It means being connected to the body of Christ. Um, a person who did this incredibly well uh, is J.O. Fraser missionary to China. Uh, if you're at OMF, you know James Fraser real well. Others encourage you to read the book Mountain Rain. It was a guy that in many ways looked like a Lone Ranger missionary. Went off trampling around the uh, mountains of Yunnan province, uh, taking the gospel to the Lisu people. Uh, and he looked in many ways from an outsider very much like a Lone Ranger missionary. But uh, if you read his story, he's very clear that he was very connected to his church. And uh, not just that they were, you know, back there somewhere, but he felt that their prayers and their participation as prayer warriors were the key to his effectiveness in ministry. So when he talks about how the Lisu came to Christ, great story, he credits as much those people praying back in England as he does his own efforts on the ground. He was plugged into a, a group of people who were in mission with him. You know, do you, send out, do you send out support letters or prayer letters? Right? Are you building up ministry partners or donors? You know, it's all a matter of what we call things, right? Uh, and this is true for individuals and organizations, right? Are we part of the ship? Are we part of the church, the grand, glorious vessel that is Jesus and his body? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.